Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Tonight, we are joined by a brand new guest, first-time guest here on the First Gen Hunter podcast, and uh, Alex was actually the the one to kind of connect us here. So we're joined by Jacob of, uh, well, Primal, all sorts of things. We'll get into that in a minute, but uh, he is known as Primal Dad on Instagram. Make sure you give him a follow. All kinds of, like, you have super diverse content on there, man. I, I got I to gotta give you, like, a little uh, kudos for that because... Uh, you know, it can be, we can get pigeonholed into like the one thing that we're known as, and that can kind of dominate uh, all that we post. But man, you have all sorts of stuff on there, which is really cool. And uh, one of the things that was on there when I was doing my little background research on you was uh, you you race quads. Do you, do you still, are you still racing or was that no, just the... I, Nope. Uh, I hung that up um, about nine months after my first kid was born yep yep it, it removes the smart uh, man <laughs> yeah <laughs> when you're because you're, at the level that we were racing out you pretty much gotta hang it out on the edge all the, all the whole time mm-hmm. and uh after the kid it just wasn't it wasn't there no more yeah no i got yeah. you for sure it was, it, was, it was too hard and the time wasn't there and we weren't able to put the time in and do it right so ended up hanging it up and sold everything and moved on yeah well good for you knowing when to when to call it quits you know i always wonder that with like uh guys who do rodeo really hard or um even i mean like nascar racing which you know as far as like the extreme uh sports i guess you'd say uh nascar racing probably doesn't seem super dangerous because you're like in this protected car but when you're going 200 miles an hour (laughs) I mean, you know, it's like, but a lot of those guys, they have families, young kids, and I just don't know how they can, how they can, uh, how they or their family can sleep very well at night just with all that worry and stress, you know, so good call there. How did, how on earth did you get into that though? Was it just something like when you were a kid, you're, you had like, you know, your parents had quads already and you just kind of started tooling around on them and they're like, wow, you know, he's actually kind of got some skill with handling these things. I mean, how does, how does one just like, you know what, I'm going to race these things. Um, well, my dad was actually start, he was a late onset racer. He didn't even own a four wheeler until he was 20 years old. And then he ended up started racing kind of a late onset. Okay. He actually was late onset with everything, hunting, everything. He didn't awesome. do much. And then when he got later, awesome. so he was racing four wheelers, but, um, four-wheeler racing at that time you couldn't do at a young age Mm. you had to be 16 before you never had one class and that was big boy class and you had to be 16 before you could jump on them uh so i started racing dirt bikes at three and then (laughs) i raced dirt bikes from three till i think i was 11 but i always had four-wheelers and my grandfather had four-wheelers and we i wanted to race four-wheelers because i wasn't any good on a dirt bike but i could ride a four-wheeler okay Uh, but the only place you could do that at was the nationals 
and that's a huge commitment um, to start racing at the national level because you just jump in full force to be able to do that. Wow. From never racing a race to there was one little Kentucky series there all the national riders went in the winter. We went there and uh, started racing nationals that year and kind of rest is history. But yeah, yeah there's a lot. There's a lot more behind that story on how that whole thing went because I only raced them for, well, five years, five years. Okay. And uh, had two buddies get get killed from it. So my oh, parents kind of, wow. yeah, pretty close. They were pretty close uh, friends. And so my parents nicked it. After the first one, my mom was done. And after the second one, my dad was done. And it was an uphill battle from there. So yeah, we hung it up. And then... I went to college and I hunted a lot from then when I got, I mean, that's when I kind yeah. of really started hunting. My, my senior year of high school, that's, I went to school. I went hunting after work. Hey, that's not a bad way to live, man. <laughs> after school every day. Yeah. And then uh, I'd say two or three, two years into college, I had saved up enough money to buy a dirt bike again and then took, bought another dirt bike, then bought a four wheeler. And then once I had one four wheeler, it was all, and it was full-fledged until we were back at the Nationals and racing them really, really hard. So, Yeah, well, that's that's incredible, man. And sorry to hear about the tragedy, too, with, with losing a couple friends. Um, it does highlight the dangers to stuff like that. Did you, did you like, do the jump stuff, too, like go off the big jumps and, and that? That was where I started with Moto. Um and that was my bread and butter was moto. Um, and then I kind of got bored, not bored. I got tired of practicing on moto tracks. So to mess around, I went to a GNCC national and just, I took my practice bike and went for a race. Okay. And did really well and had an absolute blast. I'm like, well, heck, I'm going to do a couple of these a year. Mm-hmm. And then I went from a couple of these to I'm done with the moto thing and I'm going full GNCC. And then it was all over from then. Yeah. And it's more into the, it's a lot more of an endurance sport. It's a two to three hour race. Um, so fitness is 80% of it. Sure. Uh, you can, you can, you know, so yeah, skill yeah. needs to be there and fitness need to be there. And, and then, then uh, to be honest with you, the dollar values kind of start falling out of it. Yeah. Whereas a moto is such a short race, a, a strong motor can win you a race via, um, just being able to spend a little more money on a fresher motor and stuff. So that's kind of where it went and went full force at it and had a lot of fun there, but I knew it was not for everything when I did it. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Learned a lot. Yeah, for sure. What was the craziest jump? Like either not, I mean, it could be in an event or maybe just when you're practicing four wheeler or dirt bike. What's the craziest jump you ever did? Oh, uh, there's one, I don't know, probably the biggest, it's it's actually the biggest jump I ever hit, but it was extremely easy. It was one of the most easy jumps I ever hit, but it's, really? called, it's called it Sky Shot in New York. Yeah, and if you watch some videos of it, it looks massive, but the way it's built, it's really, really easy to hit. And I don't know. But at that level, it's kind of like everybody hit the jump, so it, wasn't, it didn't seem, none of them really seemed too crazy. Most of the ones that were crazy was when we were 14 and our quads couldn't make it and we were <laughs> too young and dumb to not go for it. <laughs> <That was> when, <laughs> once we got to age, we just like 
you, if your bike could make it, so you would, and everybody did. So it was the younger years that were what more it, iffy. Yeah, I can only imagine. I, I mean, whenever you watch like uh, <clears throat> Travis Pastrana or somebody go off those jumps, and I mean, how high are they off the ground? They got to be, I mean, what? I don't know. 40 50 feet in the air I would, I would say those freestyle jumps yeah i just don't understand how they don't die in practice <laughs> you know what i mean like well, that's it, why he stopped <laughs> I, I just well, don't mine wasn't mine wasn't the jumping it's trees is why i stopped yeah i can and then the gncc racing thing is yeah you, you can hit trees going pretty fast and trees don't move yeah. It's actually the, my very last race ever. Um, I was going into summer break, and a close buddy of mine um, and me, with that level, you pretty much wide open the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're in tight, tight woods, and there's you're snaking back and forth. Lines are crossing, and it's nothing. I mean, it's common to be only 10 to 18 inches apart. I mean, bumper to bumper wide while you're S-bending. Well, we came into a – our lines were crossing and I had a quarter wheel on them, which means he should have lifted. I mean, typically, and like we, at that level, you can trust people to lift. Well, he thought I had a, he had a wheel on me and he didn't lift and he got catapulted. At, I don't know. We were probably going 35 mile an hour. Oh he, my hit, he hit a tree right beside me. He flew up and hit it like 10 feet up in the tree and bounced down, broke his collarbone pretty good and was messed up. And that was the moment that, I quit right then yeah. after that race. I didn't race again because I could have been me on against that tree. And I was just, I don't know. Yeah. No, I don't but blame you at all, man. Yeah. That yeah. was it. That was the final moment. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's an important chapter of your life. And I imagine it probably, you know, when your parents made you take that long break, I got to imagine when you were getting into hunting so hard at that point is because like you, I got to imagine the adrenaline rush of doing that stuff to just like take it away would be like, you know, someone quitting a hard drug cold Turkey. You know what I mean? It's just Mm -hmm. like, there's not going to be like, it's not just be like, Oh, okay. I guess I'll go watch TV or, you know, just work on my homework more. You know, it's like you you had to, do you think that like, is that why you got into hunting so hard? Do you think? Cause you were just chasing a, another thrill. Yeah, I think it is it's something. There, I don't know what do you call that, the bug, the, the scratch, the itch, or whatever. There's got to be something. There always has been. And mm-hmm. to be honest with you, it was kind of a mixture. Um, I got really into wakeboarding, too. Okay. Yep. My parents happened to get a wakeboard boat at the same time, and we did. I was either wakeboarding or hunting. So in the summer, I was wakeboarding and tried to do some competition. Nice. Just And then uh, in the fall, I hunted a lot. I didn't realize I was hunting a lot. I just was hunting a lot. This is like pre-social media days. You didn't know what yeah. normal amount of hunting was. It was just I went to school every day with a tote in my <laughs> and I put clothes on and drove to the same place every single day, the same property, same tree stands, and uh, just hunted a lot. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome, man. Awesome. I we should have we should have mentioned what state are you in? I'm in Ohio. Ohio. Okay. Yeah, that's a great place to great outdoor state there. Yeah. And um, man, I bet I bet you. Uh, we're seeing a lot of nice bucks back then too. Have you, have you noticed a decline in uh, like deer hunting? I hear about that around the country. I heard a really interesting point. Um, 
uh, on the land podcast or the Exodus podcast with Jake Hofer. Um, and he mentioned just like the Western migration of like great whitetail hunting, how that's happened through time. And he's like, right now it's, you know, uh, everyone's talking about Iowa and Kansas, but if you keep following the trend, it's probably going to keep, you know, where's it going to end up next? Is it going to be Nebraska? Is it going to be, you know, and, uh, so, I mean, with hunting so hard and in such a, you know, I mean, really one of the best whitetail states in the country. Have you noticed a drop off since your early days of deer hunting? Like when you were, when you, and maybe it could be when you were first getting into it as a kid, but I imagine more so when you were in high school where you were like knew how to like pay attention to what's going on better and stuff. Has it changed much? Um, it's really hard for me to put a thumb on because to be honest with you, I hunted the same property. Mm-hmm. which was a 40 acre cornfield with two fence rows <laughs> and i it was necked up to a 550 acre piece owned by one person that loved deer wouldn't allow any deer hunting mm. so i was hunting that and then um on that property her son ended up building a house really close to that cornfield mm-hmm. so yeah i used to see 18 20 deer a night um and killed a lot <laughs> I caught a lot of big deer when I had no idea what I was doing. That's awesome, man. Um, so that place has absolutely went down. I still stop over there once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. I shot a doe out of there this year. I just stopped in there, but um, it's nothing like it used to be. Yeah. Um, but I still hunt in the same county pretty much as a whole. And to be honest with you, we've got good deer. I mean, around mm-hmm. here, uh, it's it's hard because there's the, the properties are so small and hunting mm-hmm. has become so popular that there's so much pressure that they go nocturnal so quick. Oh, really? Uh, mm-hmm. you, you don't get a hunt. Like I was used to experience when I was first starting hunting. It was mm-hmm. like they moved as deer instead of deer that were being hunted. Um, yeah. I, I mean, they just, we called it the light switch 45 minutes before the end of the day. I took all my friends because I didn't know no better. We'd, yeah. we'd have four people sitting on the edge of that fence row when I was in high school. <laughs> it was a light switch at 30, 40 minutes before dark, you flip a light switch and deer would start piling out into the field. That's cool. I, I took my, my now wife with me and I had two other buddies with us, got her first deer there um, because they weren't pressured, but around us um, it's a different ball game. Hmm. You don't, you don't hunt them. They don't act like deer. They act like deer trying to survive from all the pressure. So they yeah. don't move. So typical movement is 11 to two in the morning. Yeah. That's crazy. But there's a lot, a lot of big deer being killed in Ohio still. Mm-hmm. Oh there's yeah. Yeah. No doubt about that. Dropping, so. Yeah. No doubt Definitely about that. The, uh, density is down. I would say deer density is down for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's interesting to look at that. And I imagine that's probably, you know, the biggest thing with that. And of course we hear all the time in in the hunting space, just about, you know, deer hunters are better now. Think of the resources available now for a, uh, a deer hunter. Well, for me, you know, first gen hunter, I got into hunting in 2015. And even since 2015, look at the, look at the number of resources out there for a, a, someone who's like, you know, I just want to get into deer hunting. I mean, I, the, the biggest resource for me was the wired to hunt podcast. 
Um, and think of that's been running since 2014. Now, anyone who wants to get into deer hunting can go and get 10 years of some of the best whitetail hunting content on the planet and just listen to it episode after episode after episode, you know, and, and by the end of that, I mean, you're going to be a cold blooded killer. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, I mean, I think that's probably part of, that's probably part of it. But I think also too, um, just think of how much, I mean, you just mentioned it there in your story, how much habitat's been lost building a house like that you know that's supposed to be a pick and bones topic at some point alex is i really want to have chase burns on here a guy who sells a lot of um uh recreational ground which hey round of applause for chase uh he was the second uh second how do they state that he sold the second most um uh farm or like acres yeah i think acres or or sales worth or something like that in the state of illinois for his uh his company last year um just uh just a tremendous thing but we need to have him on here to talk about that exact thing that jacob mentioned where um people will build a house they'll be like oh i love this you know slice of heaven that that is over here and then they go and build a house like right in the middle of it and just kill the hunting value you know but uh it's habitat loss i think there's just been we're all getting old enough now to where we can look back at hey how were things 15 20 years ago and that's enough time for some serious change to take place i in iowa everyone always talks about like right around 2002 as being the uh just like the absolute best for for whitetail hunting in iowa and um you know there's a lot of development that's happened in iowa a lot of i i was just talking with somebody yesterday they moved to uh ankeny iowa in 2012 which is a um like just a suburb of des moines uh to the north and um when they moved there, it, the town was a population of 35,000 people in 2012. Today, it's 80,000 people. I mean, that's just – think of how many wild. acres of, of you know, what would have been deer habitat, at least to some extent. A lot of it was ag fields, but a lot of it was deer habitat too that's gone because of meeting those housing and, and shopping needs for – for uh that many people so yeah it's interesting to look at those dynamics through time but man you uh you don't just chase whitetails anymore the other thing i noticed on your uh your instagram jacob was you like go hard after the western hunting like an out ad right yeah and um some mule deer you shot a really nice mule deer buck that i saw and um I know also we're going to get to the story on your elk hunt um, tonight as well, but like where, where did that bug come from to get you out West? Um, well, to be honest with you, that was my uh, supposed to be my senior of high school graduation present. My father and uh, I were going to go on a elk hunt and okay, um, it came time to do that. And they told me, Hey, we can either pay for you to go on this elk hunt or we can try to help you out with college costs. And I was like, 
college. So I chose college and I was like, we'll get there eventually. I didn't know that we'd ever get there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up going to college and then uh, he actually went to high school with me, but he also went to college with me, but good buddy of mine. Um, after college, he ended up moving to Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm. And he hadn't even moved in yet. And I'm like, dude, we're going out. Okay. <laughs> I don't even think he had it. Like we're, we're going, like, I don't care why I'll buy whatever. Like we're, we're going to go, we're going to make it happen. Like it's one way or another. Um, he moved out there and I think we ended up going like five months later, season come in. Um, and me and a buddy of mine flew out. He never had met the other buddy. Um, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Uh, mm. We were buying the cheapest stuff that we could get to check all the boxes. Cause you know, uh, kind of yeah. just, you listen to everything, the further you go in, the harder you hunt, the more success you're going to have. And the only thing we spent our time doing was nature walking is what we ended up doing. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where it all started. But when I was racing, I always told all my buddies that, like that I raced with, I said, when I, when I'm done with this, I'm going to hunt hard. Like as much mm. time as I spent into this, this is, that's what I'm going to do. I don't, I didn't know it was going to be Western hunting. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, and I, I Western hunt, but yeah, I still hunt whitetail pretty hard and some ducks and stuff around here pretty hard too. But I always knew that I was going to hunt hard. That was going to be my, I was going to replace my bug of racing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so and it kind of happened that I was still racing and doing that. We, we did two years of elk hunting. Um, and those are to be long stories in themselves, but pretty much hunted areas that there were no elk and we, had zero chance and we just spent we spent the first two years learning how to backpack yeah like well, we didn't we didn't see a single animal the first two years mm -hmm. good learning experience yeah actually i take that back year one we got 50 yards from the truck and we were jumping mule deer up everywhere and we had a mule deer tag oh, and we walked right, we walked right past them five miles in and hunted a nuclear wasteland where they had just ran sheep through and we spent four days there trying to oh. hunt a new we didn't see nothing the whole time so yeah so. that that's an interesting point that you make there where that i think a lot of people who haven't hunted around livestock may not know this but if you've hunt if you're hunting ground that's been grazed and there hasn't been a chance for uh like regrowth which is going to be most places during hunting season um <clears throat> you could be looking at a very large area with very few animals in it because um, the food's gone, or at least the best food is gone. And um, I think that that's a, that's a little wrinkle that, you know, Caleb and I, we saw that when we went to um, Nebraska for a mule deer hunt this, this winter, uh, this one place, uh, the landowner was very gracious, allowed us to hunt his, his piece. And, um, he had, I think it was around 3,000 acres um, that we were on, and or no, it was 1,600 acre piece we were on. And he's like, "Yep, no cows have been in there for 45 days." And we're like, "Sweet, you know, the, these the deer are going to be moving back in here. They're going to be feeling comfortable again." And uh, man, those cows, they got everything. I mean, just nipped it down to the ground, and we only saw six mule deer in that on that piece of property, the, you know, for the couple of days that we hunted it. And it wasn't until we went over to another piece that hadn't been grazed yet that we were able to get some, you know, harvest some deer. And, and that was, 
it was because of that browse pressure from the livestock you know they, there just wasn't anything left or graze pressure i guess for them but so and maybe you said this right was so were both these first trips were they in utah or were they in uh yeah and okay. i was just i was just accompanying I, I didn't have a tag okay yep um neither of us did we just we were broke college kids at this point yep uh, and um so we were just flying in as cheap as we could and keeping everything as cheap as we could and just hunting on his cheap resident tag. We're like, might as well learn on that um, yeah. and get, mm-hmm. get some reps in and get some time in the back country. Definitely. Uh, and we had, we had fun. Um, so that would be t- two years. Yep. We did two years of that. And then we started to feel like we're starting to, we're, we're we're leaving the nature hike and we're starting to hunt yeah. at the end of year two. I know where we at. And to be honest with you, we just we wasted a lot of time um, hmm. just overdoing it and like making wrong move. I mean, the first trip we went up on a death hike all the way into this thing. Sure. Uh, we set up opening morning and here comes a guy off of a trailhead. They had to walk like a quarter mile and we had death hiked five miles in because we didn't spend our time aerial scouting or looking at maps or any of that. So we had just suicide bombed up over this thing and didn't have any energy left to hunt really. Uh-huh. And these guys just come walking right through the bottom, like, and they parked their side by side a half mile away. Uh-huh. Um, so we just, we made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And then, started to kind of get our feet underneath us year two. We had a couple close encounters with some elk um, and uh, had some moose really close and started to catch on. And then, and then year three would be my first year of me actually starting to get some Western tags in my pocket. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great to hear about that learning curve. And I think that your story is very realistic and, not that I have a ton of hunting experience yet, but I've done a few Western hunts and, and, um, uh, just with, with, uh, you know, learning from Alex, what, what reality is on odds and what you're going to need and the value of a hunt plan. Alex, I recently came to understand, I th- well, not super recently. I think it's when we interviewed uh, Kendall from black Ovis okay. and, um, he kind of like, talked about yeah utah is kind of a hard place to actually come and hunt um where would you rank it for like yeah uh elk hunts like is that a is it a is it a top three elk state or is it like a you know bottom i don't know how many states are there that have huntable populations of elk maybe like 12 is it like 10 out of 12 i mean where's it at I, I would put it in the top three. Oh, really? When I'm talking, yeah, they don't they don't do a lot of non-resident tags. If you're looking for trophy, it's it's top tier, that's for sure. Okay. Say Nevada, Arizona, and Utah would probably be your three primo ones. New Mexico, you can get some good tags too, but the game's a little different. No points, and then there's a lot of landowner tags. So then mm. your your random draws are a little bit funky, and then they have a guided versus non-guided pool, so that also separates sure. the tags. So, yeah, I would, and I'd probably put them in that order, in, in my opinion. I think uh, Nevada, Arizona, and then Utah, as far as perspective goes. But it's mm. definitely up there. They've changed their 
they've changed their process a little bit. They've put out different tags, different tags, different seasons. Like they have what's called their hams hunts, which is handgun, archery, muzzleloader, shotgun. And then they have like shorter weeks. And then they have general like over-the-counter options for certain units. And then they do spike-only hunts. So their spike-only yeah, hunts right. are yep. in their limited draws. So I actually like the spike hunts more than the general hunts. If you can mentally get after the fact that you're going to hunt a spike, but you're hunting the primo units. So if you were to draw a tag, you actually would have been in the unit before. Mm. And if you're seeing spikes, you're probably seeing nice bulls too. So I, I love that hunt over a general bull hunt. That's just crowded over the counter. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds so like yeah, you're I guess for the listeners. That's a, that's a, that's a perk. Yeah, definitely. That's a great tip. And Jacob, it definitely sounds like you guys are dealing with some crowding with those guys come bombing down the the valley that you just worked your tails off to to get into position on. That's just gotta be I mean, that's just part of public land hunting, but I mean oh, that just sounds awful, yep. so discouraging. Yep. But we were hunting the general hunts like he was just talking though. Mm-hmm. Um and I forget the statistics of the unit. I didn't I was not responsible for any of the research mm-hmm. prior to. He lives in Utah. You figure out where you're going. He talked yeah. to some neighbors and stuff like that. Well, where his neighbor goes is where everybody goes. Yep. And there's mm-hmm. just a lot of people. And there's not very many people that were willing to hike um, mm-hmm. so get in there. But I forget the crazy statistic. But I think it was like the herd is like 500 elk in this unit. And it's like. I forget how many thousands and thousands of acres. I mean, it's a needle and a haystack. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, to put it in perspective, his uh, neighbor has been going for 29 or 30 years now. He takes off for the entire month and goes and hunts. He's never killed an elk. No, that would Whoa. not be a good resource. I didn't know this. At the, I didn't oh. know this. I didn't know. I didn't know this at the, at the time. But yeah, they take a camper up, and he takes the entire month off, and he goes up and camps. Oh, he's and, having fun camping. Yeah, he's yeah. camping. He has, his, his whole family goes up. They have an absolute riot. Uh, I actually went with him last year uh, before my mule deer hunt. We flew in and archery hunted. And we just pushed in further than most people were hiking in. So we weren't backpack hunting, but we were not close road hunting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're just having a good time. They're enjoying it. Um, just kind of like a Ohio, Southern Ohio deer camp, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Not a single elk in 30 years. And I was like, this is, we're going to have to find somewhere else to go. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, I'm actually going to go with him. I'm not sure if I'm going to grab a tag yet or not. It'd be a lot to get done this year. Um, but we're going to go hunt a spike tag in Utah this year. Nice. One of those coveted units. Nice. Yeah. That's, it's cool learning and adjusting that man, that, that guy, that's some dedication there. I think it sounds like elk hunting is just the excuse to get out the door for a month, but, but, uh, that's, that's, uh, that, that's pretty wild. It's, it is kind of sounding a little bit like Colorado too, Alex, the Colorado OTC hunts and just, oh, man, in September, I just I have no interest in doing that after after hearing from people who've done that and just from Alex educating me on hey you realize if you're going to go do that hunt it's probably going to be like just a uh you know gl- like you said a glorified nature hike with uh, a bunch of other people around every tree Yeah 
I mean, you can be successful. Don't get me wrong. I just, mm-hmm. I really like to give you the worst case scenario. And then if you have the best case scenario, then you're happy. But, you know, if you're being like pitched on this is going to be amazing and it's not, you're like sorely disappointed. Mm-hmm. So I rather tell you like your, your odds suck. I mean, it's like yeah. three to 6% that you're going to kill something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, but well, we, but we interviewed those guys. Yeah. Remember when we interviewed the fly true guys clear back and they worked their tails off. I mean, they hiked a ton and mm-hmm. they, um, they, did a ton of work getting in shape for that hunt and they're good hunters. You like watch their content and they kill a lot of deer they kill a lot of turkeys and, and, uh, like they're good hunters. And I think the best they, they had was, uh, they heard a bugle one night mm-hmm. right after legal shooting. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. that was as close as they could get. You know, it was just so, they said like every time they would hear a bugle, it was a Doug Flutie, you know, and, and it was just, it was just constantly running into other pressure and the elk were just underground. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in context, I know we're not talking Utah, but I'm just referencing it. Utah is trying to do more in regards to giving hunters more opportunity. So instead of having like longer seasons, you know, if they, make them shorter and they can give out a tag for each season. And in, in a sense, they're selling more tags mm-hmm. and they're giving more hunter opportunity, but they don't, they don't destroy their high quality areas, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that's a, that's what's really, really good about them. Colorado has it too. I mean, they manage, they have a different point system, but they manage like really killer units that are going to take you 20 years to draw, yep. but that's it. Like statistically, like you're never going to get that tag because it takes you 20 years to draw. Yep. Like there's no way of gaming that system unless you pick it up as a, a return tag and you're the one lucky soul that hit the enter button at the right time. that got it, you know, where yeah. in Utah statistically you could have a chance. They just don't give out a lot of tags. So it's a little bit of a different system to it. Anyways, yeah. you know, Jacob's yeah. been on some, some good, some good hunts now yeah. or he's been successful so it's been good <laughs> yeah that is good that is good so uh, but you know i think you, you mentioned something there too jacob where you just talked about like hey we were learning all this stuff and we were we were having this experience for the first time now the second time and and you're right part just learning how to pack a backpack you know that was one thing one big advantage i had when I got into hunting is my dad took us backpacking quite a bit when I was a kid growing up, we'd go, we'd go into a wilderness area in Southwest Montana and go trout fishing for a week, you know, and camping and, and, you know, so I learned a lot of that side of it. Um, and, uh, uh, that was super advantageous for me, but for you, I mean, just like taking it all on at once. I mean, what were like part of it had to be gear issues too, right? I imagine like just like even having the right clothes, right boots. Did did you uh, run into that wall too? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, everybody. So I packed everything in the kitchen sink. I forget what my pack was. It was something <laughs> crazy, like sixty eight pounds. Oh it man, it was a sixty eight pound pack for a four day hunt. Um, so it was way over i took everything we thought we needed all of it and it was it was a lot um and then honestly uh 
I think we did we did a decent job with what we had dollar wise. Mm. Um, we were we were broke college kids yep. and trying to do this. So I mean, everything was cheap. Uh, I won't say exact names of stuff just because I don't want to put them down or whatever. But certain yeah. gear, I got I got a fifty percent off code to certain gear brand company at this time. And I was allowed to use it for me and my buddy. And we bought our packs, our clothes, everything all in one fell swoop. Oh. And it was a lot of money for us. But I remember yeah. that day I got it. Uh, one of the workers there was courteous enough to give us a, a code. And it got us through. And we were we were, we were were fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, like our tents were heavy. Our sleeping bags were heavy. Our yeah. pads were heavy. Um, so, yeah, it was a learning curve. Um, optics were and then honestly, when we were hunting in Utah, optics weren't really needed that much. Um, mm. Couldn't really last too much, anyways. Um, but our optics were lower end and stuff. But yeah, um, a lot of learning curves and just a lot of stuff you do need and a lot of stuff you mm-hmm. don't need. I'm still learning, and I learned uh, I learned more this year than I ever did. Well, simply mm. because I was there for so much longer. Yeah, um, in a lot harsher environment and a lot harsher terrain. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it was gear, and to be honest with you, I, so I'm an engineer by trade, mm-hmm. uh, so I think of things very critically. Yeah, it, I love gear. Like every time I come back, I tell my wife, I'm like, "This is it. Like I don't need anything next trip." And I'm always finding myself like, eh, <laughs> just get a little something, and I'm already doing it now. Yeah, uh, I just booked a. I'm going to Idaho to hunt some spring bear in May. Nice. Uh, just did finish that up today. Um, and I'm already like, what, what can I, what, what do I need for this? And yeah. So the gear, the gear thing's endless, but, uh, and at the same point, you don't need much. Mm-hmm. You don't need a whole lot. Like you can skills. This is what I learned this year. And this is kind of jumping ahead and I'll back up as we get started. But yeah, I sure. learned a lot that like skills is skills will trump gear every day. Mm. Of the week. You can go to, that's a great you point. You can get airmen and get your clothing. And if you know, if you understand layering systems and materials and stuff like that, you can get a long ways, I think. But, yeah, that's a, that's a great little, there's a couple of good hidden tips in there. Um, and uh, I think that's something that uh, Jacob, who's an experienced hunter already, showing that, hey, just because I've been hunting all my life back here doesn't mean all that translates over to know how in a, in a totally new environment. I think it's important to just highlight that too. You know, when you're going, when you're going on these bigger hunts out West, you, you gotta really do your research. Yeah. There's a big difference between static insulation, like for whitetail and mobile lightweight, but might mate maybe will be static insulation and understanding that layer layering. Yeah. Finally, I finally understand it, I think, um, rather well and in depth of kind mm-hmm. of what you need. Um, and honestly, it's simpler than what most people believe. They yeah. think. I think that, it's really that's simple. It's another great point. I mean, it really is. And uh, that's one that I think most people don't understand. I didn't understand it until I was like freezing to death one night. Um, I did a uh, camp out in January and we were sleeping in a <laughs> – a not airtight uh pop-up camper it was two degrees out that night and i was just like freezing i was sleeping you know i thought I'd, i planned while well, i was wearing like two hoodies and you know cotton hoodies and i was wearing yeah, like yeah. cotton sweatpants and like 
you know, heavy socks and uh, like 40 degree sleeping bag. I was, I was like freezing to death. Like I, I was so, I was getting worried that if I went to sleep, I would not wake up. And my brother saw how bad I was struggling. He understood, like you're saying, he understood layering better. He's like giving me a fleece. He's like, get that cotton off, put this fleece on, you know, and he like saved me that night. But, um, yep. But it's true and, and spot on too with the mobile versus static. You know, I used to like write that stuff off like premium or tactical hunting gear, you know, like a hunting clothing. I was like, Psh, you know, first light, sick, Kuyu, all that stuff. Yeah. They're just, you know, it's like organic peanut butter. They're just putting a label on it, trying to, trying to, you know, rip you off. And in the end, it's just the same thing. No, I started buying some of that stuff and it is a total game changer for the exact reason you mentioned. Um, it is. It, it, it's, it's what you need. You gotta, gotta be willing to spend those dollars, but also put in the research and do the practice. Like you said, uh, having the skill, you know, you can't out gear your, your challenges. Nope. Gear. And that's why I was always trying to buy the next, like, Oh, I can survive. No, there's a lot of skills that can be involved with it. Mm -hmm. And I, I will backpedal a little bit. Like, now don't get me wrong. I have a, I, I got a lot of sick of gear. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just the route I went and that's what yeah. I wear. And I have a lot of sick of gear, but I am a firm believer that you can go Western hunting with a very cheap gear set. As long as you get a top brand outer layers. Mm. I think you can get some merinos or base layer synthetics from some other c companies that may not be mm -hmm. even have anything to do with hunting, just mountaineering style stuff. Mm. Um, get some fleece and then get some puffies from, you can get a uh, puffy synthetic down from JC Penny. Um, mm. I mean, I, I have a buddy in Alaska that killed his doll sheep and a one he got from Coles. Uh, I mean, oh my goodness piece. that's gonna yeah. be like a record well, no it's a, it's and if you look up the, st the statistics of it it's not camo colored but it's it's got the it's got the fill there yeah uh, and uh i think you can get away with your mid layers and base layers and to be honest with you i spend my favorite pair of piece of hunting gear that i wear is a 28 dollar carhartt fleece sweater i get off amazon wow i bought one of them when i went western hunting and i own like nine of them now Wow, I wear them, I wear them cool. around the house. I wear them wherever. Yeah, that's, so, a, that's. I don't think it needs to be overwhelming the gear that you need, uh, but there are some pieces that are extremely critical uh, mm. that I think I've learned. Being able to cut the wind. If it rains, you need to be able to stay dry. It's mm -hmm. paramount. It's life or death situation. Um, can be, in mm -hmm. the right wrong thing. Yeah. Um, and then, puffies and, and uh, they keep you warm for sure. Um, just gotta keep them dry. Yeah, but yeah. Great, keeping, great keeping advice. Keeping the wind and rain off of you is a huge thing, I think. But yeah, great advice. Great advice. Um, this would be a great time to tell everyone a great way to get yourself geared up with with uh, premium gear that comes at a at an affordable price, very affordable price in most cases. Is go over to Black Ovis. Um, man, you got you can go with you can get discounted Sitka gear there or King's Camo makes great stuff. They have a lot of that on there. They have, um, of course their own, you know, black Ovis brand. They got Badlands. They have, uh, Cryptek. Um, 
seems like I'm forgetting another major one, but, but uh, anyways, a lot of great stuff and, um, you can get, you know, the kind of gear that, that Jacob's talking about here for a very reasonable price. You can find a link for that actually in the show notes of this episode. We do, uh, some partnering with, with Black Ovis and Camelfire, who's, you know, they're, same company really. So, uh, great way to get that stuff, but you'd need to get, you need to try and get the right stuff. Um, just for the reasons Jacob mentioned, it's, 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 they call call it the eight piece layering system. It could Uh, be. Yeah. I think you're right on that. I think it is a really good video, um, from Sitka's head engineer, not owner, but head engineer, he puts a video out and it's, he doesn't talk just about Sitka gear. Mm. Uh, he he was a lead designer for the military before he did Sika, hmm. and basically you take an eight piece layer and you can travel anywhere in the world and hunt with it. Uh, it's a good video too to watch. Yeah, but, yeah, it's, the layering system is everything. Um, yeah, yeah, and and another thing too, like going back to what you're talking about with the heavy pack. One of the things that can be very heavy in your pack is additional clothes, but when you buy that the the high-end tactical stuff like it is a lot of it at least the stuff that's going to stink like your base layers your your drawers um socks like the they will if it's merino it's going to be antimicrobial naturally but also they you know they have other compounds that they weave in there like uh peppermint something or other i think they put in some of the stuff um there's just other other ways that they they can take away the need for a bunch of extra clothes and you can just basically live in you know one set of clothes um you know obviously you're going to want to have like your puffies around but the nice thing about that is if you like keep your puffies in a because the main thing you're going to want extra clothes for is a is a survival situation like you fall in to to the water and you're soaking wet well i keep my um puffies and stuff if i'm going to be in an environment like that i keep it in a water tight um bag and that way if you you did fall in and say you got to strip down well you don't need to have a whole okay i'm going to go put on this whole second you know set of clothes no you can just put on your puffies and chill in your puffies until your other stuff gets dried out and then you yep. can get your other stuff on. And you can really cut down on weight yep. um, if, if you do that. So, And when you start cutting weight, don't ever cut that dry bag that has your puffies That's out. right. That's right. Amen. I did that prior to this year. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that's not a good idea. Keep, yeah. keep your puffies dry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Well, we need to talk about this as we uh, get to this point in the episode. Kind of the main event for this one is – is uh and I really appreciate how Jacob has pitched this. This is like a super useful episode for a new hunter, but also a veteran hunter, somebody who's just new to hunting out west. Um so that's been very helpful, but Jacob, you were on a really challenging elk hunt here recently. This was back in would have been uh September of of this year or October of this year? October. October, late October, early November. So late October or mid October to early November of 2023, yes, and uh, was it in Idaho? Did I hear from Alex? Yep. 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 Idaho. And uh, you want to just, I mean, just 
just just ramble if you need to. We want to hear the whole story, but I, I do want to preface it saying that you are lucky to be here today. You're very yep. blessed to be here today. This was a, a pretty uh, – I haven't heard the story. I just – from what Alex told me is it's a, it's a crazy intense story. You basically have a second chance at life. And um, uh, so uh, other than that, man – just take it away. Tell us, you know, where you, well, obviously don't spot burn, but, but like, you know, generally <laughs> where you're headed and like, what kind of hunt was it the, all that details lead us up into that. And then just tell the story if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't know that we were, but let's, let's fast back to, uh, 2022 real quick. Yeah, uh, I got lucky and hit a uh, controlled hunt for a uh, mule deer in 2022 in Idaho. Um, went there, um, quickly realized how steep and nasty it was. Quickly mm-hmm. realized how few people were willing to go more than a mile from the road because it's that bad. Wow. Uh, and I was successful there. Um, so I really liked Idaho. I'm like, man, if I'm going to go to Idaho, these next 10 years are about when I need to be going where I got my youth to me. Cause about 20 years from now, I'm probably not going to be able to hunt. Some of these areas. <laughs> um, and, uh, so the, and we, if we want to back just a little bit further, I don't sure. want to take too, too long, but, um, to sell, sell the whole story, um, back when I was doing the racing thing, the reason I, so I ended up racing, um, and then 2020, 2020 during COVID, I won my national championship. Wow. Um, I won that national championship, not because I was the best rider. I won that national championship because I was the most fit rider. Hmm. I spent double or triple the amount of time in fitness training than, uh, my next competitors. Wow. Uh, at that point I started doing, uh, some training too. Once they seen my success that year and I fought, I put his stories up over the whole year, everybody followed it. I started training six months before the season and was putting in, it was crazy the amount of work I was putting in. Um, I started writing training programs for people. So that's always kind of carried over. And then I just kind of carried that same mentality into Western hunting. And once we got into this Idaho stuff, I really dove in pretty deep. Um, and then after I got a taste of the mule deer and well, to be honest with you, that March, um, on my birthday, I went to West Texas in the Davis mountains, which is really steep and killed an mm-hmm. owl um, I quickly realized how fit you needed to be for these events. Um, if you really want to be able to get into the areas where the elk are, are at in these units, that there's a lot of tags, there's a lot of people, but there's a lot of elk around, um, in some of these areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then fast forward to the, uh, December 1st date for 2023 season, um, happened to get a number. Uh, I get up, there's tags left. I didn't have any other plans for the year. Um, the tags I went, wanted to get weren't there. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go here. Um, and I, I, I was actually messaging Alex that morning. I'm like, dude, Hey, what, what should I get? What should I get? Uh, he was <laughs> so the, busy. Is this the 20, this is December of 22. You, you're saying yeah, this is December of 2022. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, messaging him a little bit and he was kind of busy. So he's getting me some messages back and I just had to pick one. Um, and I picked a certain unit and, uh, got my tag and I had a buddy that my buddy in Utah was going to go with me. That's the only thing I knew. Uh, I didn't know anything else. And I just started 
I rabbit hold just like everything that I've kind of done. I obsess over a little bit. I dive in head first and this, this is my first tag and my first chance at elk. And like, this is a decent success rate. Uh, yeah. Forget that. I think it was like a 13 or 14% success rate, which is, wow. that's pretty decent for the elk yeah. hunting. I wanted to be one of those 14%. Um, I wasn't going out there not to be. And I kind of started with that mindset from December 1st. Um, and then uh, start fast forward, I think May, my, my wife was pregnant at this point, too. Um, kid was supposed to be due for our second kid, be doing May. Mm-hmm. And uh, about five days prior to her doing that, um, I decided, well, it's a couple months before that, I started training really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, pack on every single day, doing some running and stuff. And then about five days before my kid was born, didn't know it was going to be five days, but um I completely cut out all alcohol or any of that stuff, kind of started eating really clean. Mm-hmm. And my goal was to be the most fit I've ever been going into the, the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, thought it was going to be to kill an elk. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that the fitness was what was going to give me the rest of my life to live. So, um, wow. yep. So we kind of kept, kept going, um, there trained all summer. Um, my buddy from Utah ended up not being able to go. Um, his wife ended up getting pregnant and it was going to be too close to the day. Yep. And he just wasn't going to be able to make it work. He was changing jobs. Um, so I put on my uh, story that, Hey, I got an elk hunt this year. This is when it's at. I, I'll pay. I got the fuel. I'm driving out. I got everything. I got spare packs. I got spare, whatever, most everything you need. I just need somebody to go with me. And wow. uh, I got quite a few messages about it, um, wanting to go. And as you know, a good hunting partner is hard to find. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I, to be honest with you, I didn't need somebody who was a, a real experienced hunter. I just needed somebody that would be able to go the places that I wanted to go and be able to be mentally tough to be able to do it. And that was kind of right. what I was looking for. And just so happened, a, a guy, I work in an archery shop locally. Um, okay. Kind of for it's not volunteer work, but it, it's to me, that's what it is. is me volunteering. Cause I, I rabbit hole down archery a little while ago too. Um, and I want to be able to help people do the same thing. And, uh, he walked into the shop and I was talking to him and I was kind of telling him about the story. Well, he messaged me, didn't even know the guy really. I, we were separate schools, but like my friends knew his wife and anyways, mm-hmm. he decided he's like, Hey, I took off four weeks for whitetail rut. He said, I got that time off. And then we started talking. And anyways, we ended up decided going. He started training. Um, I ran a marathon a couple of weeks before we left. Wow. Uh, and he, yeah, we, and he ran half of it with me, uh, trying to get in super, super good shape. And uh, this was honestly before I used Alex fully for my hunt plans. Mm-hmm. I kind of bugged him a little bit. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Kind of questioning them like where i should go and stuff but uh i spent i don't know probably i don't know what i put into probably 100 hours at least on google earth on x and stuff mm. trying to find a place that nobody could get to because this unit has a lot a lot of tags and mm-hmm. all the research you do says don't come here there's people everywhere and there's no elk um so i just started i was just trying to find a good area to go that um if you could get there very easily at all, I put red X's on it. That's how I kind of I processed oh, the yeah. I didn't look for the right area. I didn't look for elky areas. I looked for roads, mm-hmm. access, trails, 
and just started just using on X is what I was using. And I just started Xing and Xing as much stuff as I could out. And I went and uh, to be honest with you, I started, I'd met some people from the Idaho mule deer hunt. Uh, old guy, older feller that uh, has killed a ton of elk and deer over the mm. years. I was messaging him and his cousin happened to just hunt that area. And he kind of gave me some information. But we left Ohio. Uh, we were going to leave. It was going to be a 17-day trip, um, round trip, and driving out. And uh, we didn't know we were going. When we left Ohio, I told him, I was like, I got like five plans. I got A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, that's why we were going so early. Uh, mm-hmm. We want to be there four days ahead of time and just start. Like, we're not staying in a place there's no elk. I've done that too many times in a row. We're going to look. Uh, I picked areas that we can glass. It's not thick. Mm-hmm. We can glass. If we're not turning up elk, then I'm going to move. Um, and so we ended up driving all the way out there. And about, I don't know, probably a third of the way out of there, that cousin of that that uh, guy I had met kind of gave me a, a name of a creek. And I'm like, I'm looking by my, I'm like, man, that creek sounds familiar. One of the, it was honestly, it was spot B for me at this point. Between A and B, it was a quarter mile from where I had already put an X. I'm like, huh. And he had said he had seen 40 to 50 bulls in five days. Wow. And I was kind of like the, I was kind of wondering like if it was truthful or not, but this is a, this is a good old cowboy, Idaho born and raised like this guy. Mm-hmm. He's like, he said it might've been repeat bulls, but in five days, if you were totaled what we've seen for the each day, it was 40 to 50 bulls. And I'm like, okay, we're going there. We're going to go to be, um, and honestly, I didn't go where he told me where, like, I didn't go to that Creek. I mm-hmm. went to my spot that I ended up finding. Um, and we drove up there. And I picked out some glassing points and we're just going to start eliminating country. And me and my buddy hiked in about a mile and a half to glass back where I'd wanted to hike into at a later date. And if we season was open, not open till Wednesday, this is Saturday night. Okay. And, uh, we both would have, he ended up getting a tag. I forgot about that part of the story. Uh, In the return sale, he ended up picking up a tag. Um, and if we would have both, if it would have been in season, we both would have had two dead bulls first night of glassing. Oh, nice bulls too. <laughs> oh, so we're, and to be honest with you, I, I have never seen an elk like yeah. when I've been elk hunting. Like at yeah. this point, I've never seen an elk from all the Utah. I've never seen an elk in while I was elk hunting. Was that kind of like I, a, was that kind of like an emotional experience when you glass? Oh, it was, up? it was like, it was dream come true. I, cause I told him on the way out, I said, if we see an elk, this whole trip is a success. This is first night of glassing and I see an elk. Yeah. And it's a bull. And it's a 280 to 300 inch bull at 500 yards just having a good old time. And we're we're in a basin. We weren't really trying to look in this basin. We just happened to be sit over top of this basin looking Mm -hmm. further. And uh, all of a sudden I'm like, what is, why in the world, who has their kids out here? Why are their kids screaming? And it was just because my brain didn't even think for a second that their elks ripping off bugles <sighs> in the middle of October. Oh, and like man. the fact that I was actually going to be able to hear them because I've experienced such horrible elk hunting up to this point. Yeah. Um, and then I'm like, wait, what is that? And he's sitting like 40 yards up from me. And I hear it again. I'm like, that's an elk bugle. And that's not the one that I'm looking at. 
and there was three ended up being three bulls a couple quite a few cows there and we we were just this is awesome we don't need to go anywhere else like we were we were sold so we ended up we're like well we're not leaving we're gonna stay here we ended up spending the next three days glassing mm-hmm. um and we, we determined that that basin just happened to be like a one-time middle of the day they went up there to bed they might kind of run like revolve around their path and that's like a good bedding area but they're not there every day hmm. um so we kept glassing and we ended up finding a base a draw like a big old drainage that uh had been had been burnt quite a few years prior <clears throat> and there was a ton of elk in it i mean a ton of elk once we started seeing them you could find an elk any time of the day sun up to sundown hmm. you could and turn up some elk wow um and there's a lot over there we were looking at them from about three miles away though so um anyways long story short we have this we have these elk found and it's like we're we think we've like it's over like this is insane we, this is like a dream come true um i think it was a day and a half before opening we happened to uh He's sitting that we hike all the way down in there and we had met this guy up on top because there's not very many people on top of this mountain um he said that they've been hunting this for 50 years um him and his wow. family have been hunting for 50 years well we hike all the way in this and this is steep nasty terrain a mile and a half it was about 1800 feet of elevation i mean it's straight Whoa. up and down. yeah yep. that's a... so it's straight up and down and we're death hiking in and out every day glassing and i'm sitting there it's like a day and a half before and we're looking at 150 elk on this drainage. And we're like, oh my gosh, we've got this. Nobody else can see this. Yep. I happened to glass up on top of a mountain back behind me and to the left. And I see a truck parked. And he's got a 115 millimeter Swaro spotter aimed at the same drainage we're looking at. Uh... <laughs> he knew he was smarter, more experienced, knew exactly where to park that truck, walk 20 feet, and he could look back up into that drainage. And we had done death hiked in there. Yeah. Um, so we ended up going and uh, talking to him the next morning. Uh, I talked to him a little bit because we were all staying up on the one. We were, wasn't season yet. We were all staying up on top of this mountain. And, uh, man, there's a lot of elk over there. He said, yeah. He said, they're there all the time, but there's a reason they're there nobody's dumb enough to go over there i kind of as soon as we walked away i looked at my buddy i said i'm dumb enough like we're going over yeah yep so we kind of started formulating a plan on how we were going to get in there and kind of what we were going to do Um, what's the so why was he say why do you say that what what were like was it just because it was so thick steep was there like a couple canyons in between there river just that steep and straight up and down okay um, it's so steep you wouldn't get mules in there i don't believe wow it's like right. the kind of stuff where you like you reach out in front of you and you're touching the oh ground. yeah oh yep. my goodness dude <laughs> it was pretty nasty and was it up and down like to get there like were no they... it was not it wasn't it was just um, it was just you had to do that steady climb yeah so so what i'm picturing right now is like you're up on you're you're in a giant canyon or big drainage and you're way up high 1800 well at least 1800 which that isn't that high i guess but you climbed an additional 1800 feet so you're probably at what a mile of elevation 
I would imagine. And and uh, you're looking across this valley or this canyon, and you're seeing elk three miles away yes, at, at basically eye level for you guys, so at the same oh, okay. elevation, or were they a yeah. little higher? Uh, about the same elevation, to be honest. Uh, in the mornings, they were a little lower, and they were feeding up and bedding up about the same elevation we were at. Okay. And then I imagine... Was there a was there a stream or a river at the bottom of that canyon that you were going to oh, have yeah. to cross? Yep. And what size are we talking there? Uh, it wasn't that bad, but it it, it was flowing pretty good. Um, I don't know, probably about twelve feet, fifteen feet. Um, but it was pretty deep and finding a way across. And to be honest with you, it wasn't the water that was the problem of getting there either at the bottom. Uh, and I don't even know what the exact wording for it is, but those, I, I think it's the same bushes that are in Alaska and always willow bushes. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's these willows down there by the, the water. Oh my, it was the worst I've, and if we can get into the store, once we get into the story, those play a huge part into it. These things were so thick. It was unsurpassable mm. unless you happen to find one of the little worn trails and it sometimes was a trail and sometimes wasn't. Um, and it was literally, you couldn't, no matter how hard or effort, unless you had a chainsaw with you, you weren't getting through these things. Wow. And that, uh, so when that guy up in the truck, the experienced hunter, when he said no one's dumb enough to go, <laughs> to go over there, he knew about all that. So he knew about the river. Yeah. He knew about all the thick willows. Yeah. Well, I, is, were there grizzlies in this unit? No, no grizzlies, just, just blacks and a lot of them, um, and to be honest with you, that group um, had like a little, I mean, it was a fortress they had built up there because they knew, they knew what we didn't know yet. Um, the weather up there is, can be pretty gnarly. Um, sure. But they all have what's called a Rokon bike. And in this unit, they have dirt bike only trails and they have these, have you seen the Rokons? The, are those just like the, uh, like the motor assisted, you know, like like e-bikes or what are no oh no no no. okay i know what you're talking about yeah like the trail bikes yep but they're but they got atv tires on yes yep they got 10 10 gallons of water in the front wheel and 10 gallons of fuel in the rear and they got a little tiny horsepower motor in it but they move about two mile an hour but they'll climb a straight vertical wall (laughs) it and they can tow uh i think the full loadout is uh i think you put 800 pounds of meat on them and still drive around two wheel drive yeah so they have these things and they are not even willing and that cuts that cuts quite a bit of distance off of the 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 trip yeah Uh, and they weren't willing to go over there yet um but we were um we didn't know exactly how yet i spent i didn't sleep once Mm -hmm. i found honestly it kind of got like are we even really going to go scout today we were just waiting for opening morning because at this point we would we would just spend all this time hiking in to look at them and yeah. we knew where they were they weren't moving. Uh, were you tempted? So I, just, I mean, I'm not sure what the legality would be here. If you guys had been since you were there early, could you have been like, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna take one of these bonus days and we're just gonna try and like hike halfway there and then we'll camp and then you know be go time in the morning, or would they would that be counted as no, you're hunting by pursuing these elk? Oh no no no! So that's what we ended up doing. Is the okay. day ahead of so you're yeah okay. We so early, but we were having like we were just doing it for our own pleasure of watching elk. Um Because yeah. I watched I watched them. I mean the the rut was 
on full swing. I watched the bull. So cool. I watched the bull breed at I don't know. I got twelve like thousand yards away, twelve hundred yards away. I got full phone scope of the whole thing happening. Him pushing his cows around, breeding cows. Um, It was absolutely just an awesome time. But we were just we were killing time. And go figure. We're starting to look. And uh, to be honest with you, you have full service up here at the top of that mountain. They have Mm -hmm. full blown service, and so we're getting weather reports. And there's going to be a storm roll in, um, and it's going to roll in at about right when it gets dark, the night before the hunt starts, and it's not going to stop for two and a half days. Oh man, two Just days. Rain or snow? Well, snow, lots and lots of snow where we were. Oh. So I'm sitting there kicking, like, what are we going to do? Somebody's going to have, somebody's going to go get them. Like somebody's going to go after those things. Um, and if you just understood kind of how you got there, which I don't want to get into too much because people rabbit hold this podcast, they might be able to figure out exactly where we're at. Yeah, and I'll right. be back. No. Yeah, I'll be no. back. I'll be back there in October. So <laughs> I don't want to be spot burning my own spots. Um, but we we couldn't figure out how, what we were going to do. We didn't want to get the. We don't know how bad that storm's going to get. And we've heard horse. I talked to some locals like, don't get stuck up there in a snowstorm because your truck will be there till spring. Oh. Like you, you won't get it out. Uh, and I talked to the locals like, hey, what do you guys, I drove the side-by-side over. Cause we did have a side-by-side with us just to get up and down that mountain on our, our side. Mm-hmm. Not where any of the elk were, just to get up there. It's a 10-mile trail from the main road. And uh, I was talking to them and he's like, well, we we know people down in the town. We just radio down to them and they bring their excavators up. So they, they bring entire excavators up the trail and we'll dig them out. So they don't care. And he's like, I don't, I'll be here for two months if I have to. He said, we just, we just weathered a storm. And we were like, well, we, we really can't do that. We got a little 1500 pickup truck and a 12 foot trailer and a side-by-side. Yeah. Um, so what we ended up doing is like, we're going to at least be in the fight. Um, we're going to, we took and loaded everything. We had already base camped up at the top. We were going to spike 10 in. We loaded everything up and drove it down the mountain, dropped three quarters of the elevation of the mountain and got it down into safety where it's not going to snow. Well, I got to thinking about it, and I'm like, well, we just put the truck down where it's not going to snow. There's got to be an elevation. If we go down this other side, it's not going to snow. And uh, so we happen to go up, and we, we set up a base camp, and we're wondering. This is, I don't know, probably noon of the day before the hunt. We're trying to figure out what to do. And uh, long story short, we happened to go um, where I wanted to put my tent. There was somebody else already had their tent there. And I just wanted it there mm. for out of the wind. And I kind of said, hey, you care if we put your tent over here? It's going to be close to yours, but not on it. Like, we're going to be over here. He's like, no, go right ahead. Ended up talking to the guy. This guy's been hunting this unit for quite a while. Um, And we were telling him what we want to do. And he was kind of wanting to do the same thing. And uh, he's like, well, we had known the guy for 10 minutes. Yeah. And uh, we were loading up our packs, and we were going spike tenting in together. (laughs) We all pitched in because we didn't, we didn't have a hot stove at this time. Mm-hmm. I had a hot tent, but I didn't have a, a titanium stove. Sure. And he's like, well, I got a stove. So we split the weight up. We'll dive down in here, and we'll at least be down below the snow line. We won't hunt together, but we'll at least dive down there, and we can all split up. He hadn't been scouting, so he didn't know where the elk were. Mm-hmm. So we dive off this mountain, and we're like, we're, we, we were laughing all the way down this hill. I mean, he was literally just giddy laughing because he knew it, nobody else was going to be on these elk in the morning. Everybody was going to be stuck in – two foot of snow and we were going to be down below it. Mm-hmm. So we get down there, we set up a tent. Um, 
the guy forgot all of the poles to his tent, um, all the stakes and everything. So we were cutting down trees, making poles, making stakes. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. So got firewood cut, though, and filled it up inside the tent and uh, went to bed. And uh, me and my buddy decided that we were getting up around, I think it was like 3.34 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And we had, we had pushed uh, – we pushed down the one side of the mountain. We still had to, we were almost to the bottom, probably had another 800 to a thousand feet to drop. I mean, probably more than that, probably 1500 feet to drop across the river. And these elk were coming up out of a bottom. And to be honest with you, they're coming out of some private and we, and they were coming onto public and we were wanting to set up kind of where the transition was. Mm-hmm. And so we got in there somehow we got across those uh, bushes really easily um got across the water but by the time we got out of the tent to this time it hadn't stopped downpouring rain zero i mean Mm. i i actually posted a story to some friends and stuff that uh i said going out i posted this at four in the morning heading over said we're going to shoot the the elk are here we're going to move into this area we're going to shoot them first thing and as soon as the sun comes up we're going to shoot an elk we're going to run over skin it up string it up a tree take a load and we're going to mad dash back to this tent before we get hypothermia. Cause we knew we were going to be wet and we knew it was a risky maneuver. Mm-hmm. We knew it was, we knew we were going, we were going full, we were going, let going all out for this opportunity, but we thought it was doable and it was, it was, was, um, so we get over there, sun's coming up. We're, we're there 45 minutes to an hour early and right where I wanted to be. Wind's perfect. Thermals are perfect and i don't know probably 10 15 minutes 10 minutes before legal light i hear them and they're 1500 feet to 2000 feet elevation above us they had already moved up the drainage hmm. and uh that's quite a bit i mean that's a good now you're, hour now you're talking you're you're hiking into snow line probably right uh no not quite not quite into the snow line because we're at the bottom at this point like we're okay. we're down pretty low uh but we got to go up 1500 to 2000 feet and, um that took us about an hour, an hour and a quarter, hour and a half, somewhere in there. And because I didn't even, as soon as they bugled, and I didn't even think twice. I threw my pack on and gone. Like yeah. didn't even think about anything. This is where the, the this is where the mistakes start to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, everything prior to this was very well thought through. Like we were going to be okay. We knew we were pushing the limits, but we we had a plan and we could make it back. We were good. Um, at this point, mistakes were starting to be made, and I just didn't realize it because I had one. I was very headstrong on, I wanted to get an elk. Um, and it, there wasn't going to be anything that was going to stop that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I was in my head thinking. We took off after the elk <laughs> and uh, we ended up getting, I was getting pretty close to where, and at this point, my buddy kind of, he was with me, but he wasn't with me. We were, I was kind of up just a little bit mm-hmm. further. And uh, we were probably, I don't know, six seven hundred yards from where i i would think where they would be mm-hmm. and we were i was staying on the left side of this this finger ridge and they were off the right side of it and i was getting about to the point where i was going to start to try to like peek over and get eyes on because uh, i spent a lot of time long range shooting and at that distance i was going to be i was going to be happy with that shot um or be able to move in if i could mm-hmm. um i was going to start hunting them um, and try to get right. eyes on or picking them apart. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm like, what's that noise? 
it sounded like thunder, but I'm like, that's not thunder. I'm like, that's a stampede. There's a hundred elk probably running straight at me down the hill, down the drainage. Something bumped them from up above. Oh man. And they're running straight at me. And, but I needed to run. So I ran like 40 yards up to this big log and, uh, I just threw my rifle down on it and there was at least uh, probably 80 to a hundred out crossing 60 to 70 yards away from me, but they were seven deep. I don't know how many bulls were in there. Um, quite a few raghorns and spikes. And then I seen quite a couple good bulls in this herd. I mean, but I, there was no, no shot opportunity whatsoever. Cause yeah. if I shot one, I would have shot seven. I mean, they yeah. were that thick going through there. That's crazy. Uh, wasn't even a thought. I was just kind of looking at them. Um, and then they kind of went down into a drainage. They went down into the, the bottom of the drainage and, uh, where you started <laughs> the day. No, right? they, they, they were, they were 500 yards away from me. They didn't know I was there. Okay. They had stopped well, running. Well, but I mean like when they ran down the drainage, were they down to where you started your morning basically? No, no, no. Uh, not, not really. No. Um, it's hard to explain, but there's two fingers up this drainage on the right side and the left side. They didn't okay, run down yeah. it they ran through the valley. Okay. So they're, they're, they're same far width or same height up the drainage. Uh, but they're down in the valley and I'm up on the right finger, Okay. but I can't see them down in there cause there's trees, Yep. but I can't hear myself think because there's so much bugling and mewing going on. It was the craziest thing I've ever experienced. I couldn't hear myself, um, think at all. And I'm trying to like whisper splash, try to get my buddy to catch up to like get up there with me. Um, cause I had left him behind cause I needed my tripod. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were on a, we were on a steep face, like straight down and my bipod's nowhere near long enough. Lesson number two of the trip. Yeah. Need a different shooting setup than that. And so I didn't have my tripod. He had my tripod and I'm up there. I'm trying to get eyes on these. Can't see anything. Well, they started filtering up the other finger the other side of the drainage um, about 500 yards away. I can see them clear as day. I can find them in the binos, but I I can't shoot them because I have nothing to shoot off of a 500 yard shot. I can take um, as long as I can build a good shooting position, but I could not. Um, And so I started trying to, I was frantically trying to come up with different ways to build a shooting platform. I was, I broke a stick off of a tree. I was shoving it in my gun, trying to like into the arc rail, trying to build a, Mm -hmm. And uh, rangefinder battery died on me right right then. Oh. When I was yeah. But anyways, I ended up getting rangefinder battery changed, and I looked up about fifty yards from me. I seen this big old rock bluff, so I ran up, and that rock bluff was kicked out enough that I could lay behind it. And I took my shoulder and dug out a bunch of dirt, and now I have a shooting platform. But I'm alone. They're on a uh, timbered hillside, and. Uh, with 80 elk, it's hard to find. There's two bulls in there that were pretty nice sized bulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't care which one I was able to find in the timber and get a shot off on. Uh, I was just trying to trying to find the two bulls because it was happening so fast. And they're filtering with 80 over there. It's hard to yeah. and with the dark timber face. Um, so I'd find them in the binos. Lesson number three: uh, rifle hunting, uh, built-in rangefinder in your binos is a game changer. Mm. Because I would find them in the binos, switch to my rangefinder, and then try to get on the gun, and then it'd be out of the hole. Yeah, so, yeah. 
anyways, I ended up getting my shot. Um, <coughs> and I shot the second biggest bull in the group. And um, I don't want to put exact scores on him, but uh, he's probably north of 310, south of 340. Wow. And he was the second biggest bull that, that was there. There was one that was a mega giant. Um, it's pretty pretty awesome to see because when he ran across, I got one really good view with the binos on. Uh, he was running some cows across the, an opening, and he had his head tilted backwards, and his whale tails were sticking like behind his butt just a couple oh inches. My God. I mean, he was a mega giant. Yeah. Whoa. Yep. And uh, – but at this point, I, I've never killed a bull elk before, so uh, it, any of those two, I was going to be very happy with. Yeah. Um, so I ended up shooting, getting my shot off, and my buddy runs up, and so I ended up shooting him, and uh, I held about I don't know about <clears throat> a, a half mil to a mil of wind, mm-hmm. and because I knew the wind was going to be sucking down the drainage, and it ended up hitting more windage. I hit perfect elevation, but I hit more windage than what I thought, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so if they're still up, I send more uh, rounds. He had he as soon as I shot him, he started falling down the hill. Uh, well, when I shot again, it hit the rocks below him and it like scared him and got his gumption back up. So he followed the herd up and over the hillside there. And uh, my buddy come up and we were all pretty jacked up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was shooting a three hundred wind mag at the time, one hundred eighty mm-hmm. grain bullet. Pretty sure it's a going to do a good lethal job at that distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're pretty ec- ecstatic, um, but it was just, everything happened so fast. But yeah, I was, that was the highest of highs at that moment. And thinking that uh, finally of wouldn't, I mean, you, being a hunter from back East until you get your hands on them, you don't get your hopes up too high, no matter right, how good yep. it's done, you That's just right. never do. Don't let yourself get too high. Yep. So I still had that a little bit to me, but there was an inside kind of excitement. And as soon as it took us, uh, so from the, where I shot him at to getting to him, it took us an hour and 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Just because it was that steep down and up to mm-hmm. get straight up. And I wasn't smart enough to run the rim. I went straight down and straight up because I was adrenaline pumping pretty good. Yep. And uh, so we got up there, got the blood, uh, started following the blood and, they, come, they went up over that hill, and the blood took it down this other side. And uh, we start going down this, and I, I, I'm pulling up on X, and I'm looking at the bottom, like, how are we going to get out of here? Like, looking at it, and it's like, okay, it, it, this is the worst right here. If we can get down this, it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. And so we started cutting our way down, and it was a shale rock cliff face is basically what it was. Mm-hmm. And we got... I don't know, probably halfway down, and we realized half, probably a little more than halfway down this face, and we realized, hey, there's no, this is cliffs, like we we can't get out of here. We're not going to be able to get down here and get after them, because um, I believe they had made it out the bottom of that next cliff there mm-hmm. um, to get back on that bull, and we couldn't get down it. Uh, there was no way; it was pure cliffs, and uh, so we were like, we just got to go back up. No big deal. It was, I mean, we were slipping and sliding most of the way down on shell rock face. We knew it was going to be really, really tough. And it was, we turned around, took a drink of water and realized we're going to have to spin all the way down and go around after them. And it was, I don't know. It was 
it had to have been within the same minute. That storm that was, it was about 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet elevation above us. It was like the clouds just started rolling. Like the, the, the fog just started rolling and that entire storm shifted. It was, it was 34 degrees um, at this point before that storm started coming down. And we're as soaked as soaked can be to where when we, before we started going down that cliff, I pulled my base layers off cause they, I needed to wring them out. Oh my goodness, dude. Yep. And I had an inch of water in my boot cause it's still raining. It's downpouring this whole time, the whole hunt at up to this point. I got an inch of water in my boots. Uh, it was 36 degrees. Um, we weren't cold though, because we were, yeah, you're, you're working hiking. So yeah. Yeah. And we were, we weren't cold at all. Uh, it was cold, but we weren't cold. Um, and that storm rolled down and it went to 17 degrees and that storm went to almost blizzard conditions. Um, and we're on a straight up cliff face that was almost unhikeable, almost unsurpassable to get back up. We were, we weren't happy. We were, we were worried, but we were okay. Uh, that storm rolled in and we started getting pretty worried pretty quick because mm-hmm. it dumped a couple inches, four or five inches of snow within really 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 fast i don't know if i've ever seen it snow that fast before and so we started trying to get up and out of there and uh it quickly come to realization that we we weren't going to be able to get out there the way we came in um it just wasn't an option um we try and we're trying i would make it like five ten feet up um and he would slide i would slide back down and he'd catch me oh Uh, man and below us is the cliff face and we're, we're we're not we're worried like internally, but we haven't vocalized that we're both worried. Mm-hmm. We're both thinking it, but we're not saying it. Yeah. You don't dare say going. it. Yeah. Yeah. We got trekking poles and we're, we're four wheel driving it up this thing. Like we just got down and we got to be able to get back up. It. Um, and then we started trying to go again and we weren't getting anywhere. We, we, we couldn't, we, I'd make it 15 feet up and I'd fall 12 back down. Um, at that point we realized that we were in, we were, we didn't know what, it was kind of like panic mode. And I, to be honest with you, my other buddy, he's never been out West before. Mm-hmm. So he's following my lead. Everything was intimidating for him. I, I believe every mm-hmm. time we went down any type of face at all was new for him. But if mm-hmm. I was confident, he was confident. Well, at this point I realized I'd kind of just both got us both in a situation that I was, I was not sure that we were going to be able to get out of kind of at this moment. And, uh, we tried and tried and tried and we realized that we weren't going to be able to get out of there. Um, at this point, I'm like, we're in trouble. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get us out of here. I don't know. Uh, so I got the Garmin out. We SOS'd. Uh, this is where I started. The the panic wanted to set in mm-hmm. for sure at this moment. Um, that's what my brain was screaming is panic um, kind of. And I had to kind of just try to do my best to not panic. And my Garmin worked just good enough to get an SOS out the storm. It was blocking it and it took it forever to get out, but there was no replies. And, uh, we realized that there was, it didn't matter. Sat phone, nothing. They weren't coming for us. And if they did, they were not going to get to us fast enough. Um, we were exposed. Wind was ripping. Um, now that I'm back, I don't know how long we could have survived there. Um, cause there's no wood to make a fire. There's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And you're soaking I, I, wet. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know how many hours, but I, it wouldn't have been all night. I know that. 
there's no way we would have been able to make it through that because to back up what I mentioned earlier, my puffies are in my pack soaking wet because they're not in a dry bag. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had went through his kit when he packed his pack and I pulled his dry bags out as well because I'm like, yeah, you don't need those. Those are too much weight. We don't need those in our packs. Uh, so we don't, we don't have any dry clothes. We don't have nothing. We're soaked. It's 17 degrees and it's going to get colder and it's not going to stop for two days. So I ended up deciding, I was like, all right, well, there's only one way that's out of here and that's us. Mm-hmm. So we ended up pulling packs off. Um, I strapped them to a tree that we found on this cliff face. It was one of the pine trees, one of the lone pine trees on a cliff, you know, what they look like. Uh, I got to it. I strapped my pack to it. I took my lid off. I turned it into a mini pack. Uh, with just a little bit of emergency, like necessity stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, took one Nalgene and a carabiner and carabined it to my bino pack and uh, left my gun there and everything and threw a rain cover over it. And we ended up using the cliffs to kind of, we left the shale rock face and there, it wasn't the, it wasn't very safe to do at all by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started using the cliff. It was the only option we had because the shale rock would just slide out from underneath us. So we pretty much ended up rock climbing our way out. Um, he'd kind of push me. I'd hand him a trekking pole. I'd pull him up. <clears throat> I forget the exact yardage. It's on my Onyx. Um, but about 250 yards is the only thing we had to go. I think it took us like two and a half hours. Whoa. The yards. Um, that's on X, obviously, so that it's it's more of a horizontal distance than actual what we mm-hmm. had to climb. So at that point, we, we did make it off that cliff face. Um and at that point we thought we were we thought it was we were good to go. Um and we, we were really we didn't have time to get scared at that moment. We just kept going because we knew that cliff we had to get off that cliff face in a hurry and get out of mm-hmm. the storm. Um, so I, I pulled my phone out. I'm in the back of my mind. I'm worried because my wife just, I know she just, I've heard stories of how people get reports from the Garmin that they get called and they haven't been getting anything back. So I tried canceling the, the, the service. It wouldn't cancel. Um, so we started dropping some elevation and I finally got it to cancel, said, everything's fine. We're going to be okay. (laughs) And hindsight was I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, that was, me worried about more about my wife and just giving her assurance that we're not right. We should have done more of an update and not canceled some people coming because we, we, we thought we were out of the, the fight. Uh, what we didn't realize is how wet we were and how much energy we had expended getting to this mm-hmm. point. Um, so at this point we're, we're good cause we're going downhill. We're just, we're good to go. We got five hours till dark, four hours till dark. Um, and so we drop down and then we get down to that Creek. Um, and I'm like, Hey, while we're here at this Creek, we're going to drink a good bit of water. We're going to take mm-hmm. a minute. We got a, we got a miserable way back up out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's suck down you know, as much. You know, water. One thing I want to kind of camp out on just a second. There is just the, yeah. <clears throat> the mindset of pushing that button and, and like you said, keeping it pushed essentially. Like I've, I've thought about that. It's like, man, what, what, what circumstance do I have to be in to where I feel like, oh, is it is it worth it to get to, you know, create all this fuss over me? It's embarrassing that I got myself in this 
circumstance. It's, I mean, I'm sure all that junk is just flying around in your brain at that time. Oh, and like n- not wanting to be a hassle. Maybe I'm just overreacting, but I think you gave some good advice there and like, no, you need to like admit we're in a bad spot and it's better safe than sorry. Yeah. Um, we should have left that button pushed mm-hmm. for sure. We should have left it pushed and we shouldn't have stopped pushing it. And I should have at, so at the bottom of that drainage, there is a way out of the bottom through private. Mm-hmm. That would have been, it'd have been longer mile wise, but it'd been so much easier and they could have met us at the road and we could have got out of there safe. But, um, our pride got in the, my pride. Cause I was making, I honestly, I was making the, the calls on that. Mm-hmm. Um, my pride got in the way and I wasn't going to do that. Um, we should have left it pushing us the way we should have went. Cause we didn't realize we didn't realize where we were at and how much, how bad it was going to be trying to get back to the tent, mm. um, the spike tent. And, uh, yeah, it was, a. at that point though, we thought we were pretty good. We were both pretty shook up. Um, mm-hmm. and to be honest with you, that cliff climb out of there, one wrong move. I've replayed it so many times, like one wrong move at that moment, we would have been at the bottom of that cliff anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. that, that button needed to stay pushed. We, we were lucky that we made it out of there, but it was, um, it's just because there wasn't one thing that went wrong at that point. I mean, if one slip, it was that it was where we were at was so treacherous that, that mm-hmm. we would have been, it'd have been it for us. And honestly, at this point, my mind, my brain was just in to go mode. Um, mm-hmm. I hadn't had any true fear set in yet. Like my body didn't realize the fight or flight. It was just go. Like mm-hmm. it was just go at this point. You don't, you have one choice, just go. That's it. That's mm-hmm. what it was. And then we thought we were good. We, th- we thought our fight was only a 250 yard fight and it didn't seem unsurpassable. We thought it was just a two and a half hour, 250 yards, push it up and we're good. Um, didn't realize that we left all of our fire starting capabilities down the, the cliff. We have no spare clothes. We're frozen. It's mm-hmm. 17 degrees. At this point, we're getting cold, and we had just climbed a straight-up cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, but then we get down to the, the water. We suck down some water, and uh, it's like, let's both suck down as much water as we can, and let's both fill an algae, and let's, let's start this trek out of here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what I thought we had plenty of time for quickly eroded um, pretty quickly. Cause I'd say it's about two o'clock at this point, two thirty, three o'clock, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. There's a hundred yards of those bushes that we have to get through to get out to where we can start climbing. And we spent an hour and a half trying to get through those hundred yards of bushes in the daylight. When we went through it in the dark that morning, we went right through it. And I wish one of us would have had our Onyx tracker on because we would have yeah. been able to go right back through it. We burn an hour and a half and a lot of energy of trying to push through these bushes and having to turn around and go again. It was almost an hour and a half. Um, I was watching my phone because yeah. I didn't want to hike this in the dark. Yeah. I, I wanted to get back before dark. It was my goal. Um, and I thought that was a really easy goal to do. Um, we didn't... We finally got through there and uh we started climbing these it, it 
it's straight up and down there too. It was about 1500 feet per mile is kind of the, the steepness of where we were at. And, uh, we started heading up the, the face there. And, uh, I think we quickly realized how rough we were. Mm-hmm. As soon as we started climbing, I think we got a good, I don't know, a couple hundred feet of elevation climbed. Uh, and it kind of both hit us like, our bodies are in rough shape. Like there's not a lot left in the tank because we didn't eat breakfast. It's all, and we don't have food. We, it's all back at the, the, the thing. Yeah. We, we, we didn't eat breakfast cause we skipped it cause we were planning on shooting the elk and then having breakfast. Uh, we skipped lunch because I shot a bull. We had no food. Um, we hadn't really drank much water cause we'd been running and gunning all day and didn't take any time for it. Mm-hmm. And we were, so at this moment it started to set in that like this, this, this hike up and out of here. And I forget how many, how far we had to go. And in miles, it wasn't that far. Um, it was probably 4,500 to 5,000 feet elevation climb, I think is total of what we had to do. Um, it's almost a mile. Yeah. Of elevation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, a it was a big feat to, to go for, but we started, we started going and, um, that's where we both started kind of, our bodies were shutting down on us pretty good. Um, and we we ended up getting down to the point to where we were we were seven steps we would take seven steps um and take a break seven steps take a break seven steps take a break and uh that's crazy man yep and i would say we got to the elevation of where i remember it so vividly i can i can remember damien talking and I turned around to talk to him and we were about the same exact elevation as we were on the cliff when we started the hike back out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking right at the cliff. It's right across. Uh, Cause we were at this point, we were just trying to get to the tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the elk are no longer a thing. Uh, at this point we were trying to, we knew we were kind of yeah, survive. surviving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, I turned around to him and he's like, dude, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out of here. And like, it wasn't like a, like this sucks type of, you know, like when you're in the mountains and we always yeah. kind of complain about, man, this is, this yeah. is rough. You know, right, maybe right. This. Now this was a true, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I told him, I was like, well, dude, like I'm not leaving you here and I'm not staying here. So you got one option and that's just keep going. Like that's, that's all we got to do. We just got to keep going. Just, and I said, right then and there, I said, just take your kids right now, put them in your front of your brain mm-hmm. and just picture your kids he has one kid at the time. I said, picture your kid, put him there and just walk. Mm-hmm. And it was, I don't even know how many steps, three, four, five steps at a time we were able to take. Um, so we started chunking them out. And uh, the spike tent was halfway to the base camp. Um, and we both kind of verbalized it at this point. We're like, dude, I hope that guy still got that spike tent there because we're not mm-hmm. making it. To the, we're not making it to the base camp and we don't know this guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I right, hope he yeah. doesn't think that we already left and he packed up that tent. I hope that tent's there, man. I hope that tent's there because we have all of our food in it. Yeah. We've got a couple of days food in there. We've got a little bit of extra clothing. Our sleeping bags are in there. Everything's in there. Um, we're just like hoping he's there and um, the tent's there and we just keep going and, we, we had many conversations and this is, this is kind of where my clarity starts to set in. Um, and the real weird part of the hunt goes for me. Um, 
they always talk about like the out of body stuff, mm-hmm. like to where you start like looking at yourself from an extra, like a, like you're above yeah. yourself. I, there was at least four times probably what I, that little distance where we were just so, there was nothing left, zero left. And like my, my brain just kind of like, I, I was watching myself hike up this, this face. Hmm. Um, and, uh, so we ended up keep going, keep going. Um, just had to, that's the only thing we had is to keep going. Uh, and we get to, we, we smelled smoke and <laughs> we both looked at each other. Like that's, that's gotta be the tent. That's gotta be the tent. And we, that's, he's gotta be in there and he's gotta have the fire. Uh, and that was the biggest relief. And to be honest with you uh, about, I don't know, probably two hours from before we got to the tent, we got phone service. So I was texting my wife uh, and just kind of giving her updates. And I have a text message from her. We're 374 yards away. That took us two hours to go that last 374 (laughs) yards. Um, We both were pretty hypothermic at this point. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. Uh, Yeah, man. I've I've heard stories of people's like their breaths going away and stuff. And that's kind of where we were at. Um, Our breaths were away. Um, and we were, it was a weird feeling. Cause like we were cold, we were hypothermic, but like we didn't, I didn't feel cold. Mm-hmm. It was, I didn't feel cold until I started getting warm. It was one of those feelings, mm-hmm. but, uh, so we ended up making it up to the tent. Thank goodness. And, uh, man. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, at that point I'm, I'm texting the wife saying like, we're good. We're good. Everything, everything's good. Um, that guy happened to be there. Um, and he had the, the fire already rolling in the tent. Um, and as soon as we heard him, we were like, get that fire going. Like we're in a bad yeah. way. Um, and we get in there he's like, guys, I thought you were dead. Oh. He's like, I was already, I was already texting my buddy. He said, I don't understand how you guys were. I didn't know how you guys were going to survive. Like, you guys didn't have rain gear or nothing. You guys went over there. I said, I thought you guys were dead. I didn't think I was going to see you again. I was already texting my buddy trying to figure out how we were going to get your stuff out of here. Because uh, he he knew more than we knew. Because uh, yeah. he was a much more experienced hunter. He's a military sniper. Been there, uh, been in those type of environments a lot. Um, and he knew where we were going. And uh, yep, so we ended up getting in that tent, uh, and I ate every single thing, but uh, that I could get my hands on. But there wasn't there wasn't any energy left. I don't think me and Damien moved for the first hour and a half. We got back. Hmm. We, we kind of cl- climbed in our sleeping bags there and um, slowly tried to get warm and ate every f- piece of food. We had no water. We ran out of water a couple hours before. Hmm. So everything that didn't require water, we're eating. Um, but it was it was cold. Uh, and that guy was there, thankfully. Um, but to be honest with you, that guy, we were, we were a team at this mm-hmm. point, but we weren't a team at all. Um, this guy was cut from a different cloth. Good mm-hmm. dude. Mm-hmm. But like he was there for his mission and his mission. And he wasn't taking one minute out of his mission to help us on our mission. And it didn't matter if we froze to death there. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of, that was the, I mean, that was pretty straightforward the way he made it seem and stuff. Um, but we ended up staying the night in the tent uh, and we ended up having to, so we, we have no clothes and we're still a good ways out. We're still a good ways from the truck. Um, and this nasty storm is dumping snow like faster than it's yeah it's just dumping like crazy 
Uh, so we we're trying to burn wood all night long. So we had a 45 minute rotation. Um, you had to set your phone for an hour and a hour and, or two hours, every two hours. Yeah. You had to wake up every two hours. No, I think it was something like an hour. Everybody did one hour. That's right. We all had one hour alarms, but we had them alternating to stock the fire. So we just kept filling the fire and we tried to, we were trying to dry clothes out all night long and uh, boots and everything else. And cause I mean, everything we had was soaked except for our sleeping bags and uh, trying to rehydrate. Our bodies were shutting down pretty good at this point. I didn't quite realize how bad our bodies were shutting down um, at that point. And uh, we were, he went hunting the next morning. We, so we get to sunrise, he's gone, disappears first thing in the morning, he's out. And I told Damien, I said, we just, let's stay here till 2 p.m. Let's try to get as much water and food in as we can to try to rehydrate it and see if we can recoup a little bit. But let's get out of here at 2. And we wouldn't even get out of the tent. We were lifting up the edge of the tent and scooping snow and trying to melt snow as fast as we could and try to catch up. But between keeping the fire going and getting water going, it seemed like we were going backwards instead of forwards. That's mm-hmm. what I felt inside. Um, and we we had a good ways. We had another, I don't know, 3,500 to 4,000 feet of elevation to climb to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a good four-hour hike. And uh, about 10 o'clock rolls around, and I was like, hey, d- hey bud, how are you feeling? He said, huh? I said, I- I'm feeling like, Every hour that passes, I feel them worse. Like I, I feel like we're losing traction instead of gaining traction. It's like, what do you think? He's like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm there. Um, I was like, what do you say we let's say we shoot out of here at eleven. Let's spend this next hour. Let's get as much water as we can. Let's take all of our effort and put as much water as we can. We, at this point, we realized we weren't going to dry our clothes. Mm-hmm. Our clothes weren't any drier than they were when we got in there. Yeah. Um, I got a pair of socks dry. That's it. Um, pair of gloves mm-hmm. dry uh, boots are soaked i wore leather boots and uh mm-hmm. so anyways we started out at 11 and what i got dry was my base layers so it was like 15 degrees and blowing snow and i was hiking in base layers like i was hiking in my uh synthetic base layers i was running mm-hmm. wearing a sick heavyweight bottoms and a sick lightweight hoodie and that's the only thing that i had on hiking out of there um he luckily had packed an extra little bit of clothes to the tent. Um, so he had a little bit more. So we started hiking out of there and we thought it was good all night. We were telling him we were good in the tent. Like everything's good. Like we're no worries left. Mm-hmm. Telling the wife and everybody like we're just hanging out pretty much at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we got 20 minutes into the hike and I, I was starting to realize that hey this we're rougher than what we thought we might not be like we might end up having to turn around on this thing and i ended up telling damien i'm like hey bud i can't hike this slow like i'm gonna end up hypothermic again if i don't mm-hmm. pick up the pace because i can't go this slow because i don't have the clothes on that he had on and i said this is not good but like i'm gonna go this this is a trail that you can follow at this point mm-hmm. like he'll be able to follow me perfectly and uh i was like I promise I will come back down this trail. Just keep going on this trail. And if you can't make it, just stop there and on the, on the trail. I will, I'm going to fl- fly up this trail as fast as I can. Um, and I'm going to grab in our tent up top. 
I have an Arctic cooler and I've got Gatorades, body armors and waters mm-hmm. and just praying that that stuff's not froze. So I take off and, uh, about halfway, about two hours into the hike, I catch service again. And I was in my head at this point. Like I was, that's, it sounds crazy to say, but we were, I mean, we, we, we wasn't that far left. Mm-hmm. But I still, I still was not sure if I was going to make it because our bodies were shutting down so bad. Um, and I called my wife as soon as I got service. And I was like, hey, I just, I'm going to need you to talk me through this. Like, so we just talked. I just shoved her my phone and my head, my bino harness. She was actually at the, she had this appointment scheduled for so long ahead, uh, like a massage parlor. She's told the masseuse, like, hey, I got to take this. So she's on, she's getting her massage and I was talking to her. So Pro- we ended up, probably a good thing for her. <laughs> probably yeah. helped ease her stress a little bit, man. Yeah. I felt absolutely horrible for that. Cause I mean, she's at home with two kids already yeah. stressful enough. Um, and then throw that in on top of her. But, uh, yeah, she pretty much talked me in all the way up. And then, uh, we, I thought I had one more hill to climb. I thought I had one more small hot hill and I told her, I was like, I'm going to make it at this point. Like, I think I, I, we're going to be okay. But she's just, we're just talking. I said, talk to me about anything, but what I'm doing right now. Just talk to me about anything. So we were talking about anything and everything. And I was just trying to, trying to keep going. Um, and then all of a sudden I just, I, I see the tent and the side-by-side was there and it was a hillside earlier than, uh, than what I thought I had to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was when it all became so surreal of how close we really were and how far we really were pushing. Cause there was this uncontrollable, it dropped me to my knees. As soon as my eyes seen the tent, it had, I, I didn't think about going to my knees or nothing. It, it took, took me to my knees and I cried like a little girl. <laughs> like I was bawling on the side of this oh, hillside because I think my body truly was fighting that whole time because it knew it was in a fighter flight yeah. type of situation yeah. and we were fighting. Do or die. And I think that was the first moment my body truly knew that, Hey, you're, you're, you're going to make it. You're going to make it to another yeah. day. There was a many of situations of that last 36 hours that we weren't sure. We, yeah. were, I mean, we weren't sure if that was, we were ever going to make it out of there. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that was my, uh, and there was so much clarity that moment where I sat on my knees, I maybe, cause I knew I was in a hustle. I was, I needed to get back down to Damien cause I didn't know how far he would be back down the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the weirdest moment of my life for sure. Um, cause I maybe was on my knees for, I don't know, 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of clarity that, which we were, we'll talk about later and kind of the not for profit that's kind of starting coming from mm-hmm. this. Um, yep but the life clarity and the everything that flashed before my eyes at that moment and like just how my rest of my life was going to be changed. It was, mm-hmm. it felt like 10 years of knowledge, man. Um, but I was only on my knees for, I don't know, 45 seconds to a minute. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was, that was kind of the, the ending of the story almost uh, i did go back and grab the tent or go to the tent drank slammed a couple waters chucked my stuff down threw my little lid back on and threw three uh things of liquids in for him 
and I took off back down the hill to find him and I didn't know how far I was going to have to go. And he was actually most of the way back up, um, helped him with a little bit of the stuff and we hiked it up out of there and got back to the tent and, uh, I had a buddy heater in that tent. We fired that buddy heater up and sat by it and ate a bunch of food. And um, we were we were feeling pretty at the, at this point. We knew we weren't going to die. Yeah, uh, we knew we were going to live because about I don't know 800 yards away there was a camp that of all those people that we could get to and they would be able to keep us from dying or at least right get us down to emergency services if our bodies completely shut down at this point. Yeah. So, man, what a story! I'm so glad yeah. you you lived through it, and and uh, man, so many lessons to be learned there uh, um, that you've learned, of course, and things you wouldn't do again. And uh, you know, if you're listening to this and you're dreaming about going west, going to Alaska, going to yeah, you know, honestly, Idaho has always intimidated me. Um, because of its reputation for just being such a brutal landscape. And I think this story really highlights that. And um, if you're going to go to a place like that, you got to have the right gear and you got to take care of that gear and you got to make the right, the right decisions, you know, and, and man, just, just uh, what a, what a, a nightmare in so many ways, but thankfully it had a, had a good ending. And, and, uh, I imagine everyone's wondering about the stuff you guys left behind. You just have to hike back and go grab it after a few days of recoup. Uh, it took us five days. Yeah. I bet you're just dreading that the whole time too. Like, uh, no, to, to be honest with you, I, I had a lot of clarity in that moment of the way it was going to change my life. And one of the biggest ways, uh not one of the biggest ways but one of the biggest things i realized is is like how you just got to keep going Mm -hmm. like and and it applies in so many aspects of life and all the things that us here in america and our society we think that's hard Mm -hmm. there's not it's not even comparable to some of the stuff that could be um and how how difficult things could be uh, so no, at that moment when we, we still weren't in the clear at the tent, we were in the clear, but we needed to get off the mountain and go reevaluate, mm-hmm. uh, give us some time off the mountain and make sure like assess the situation. Um, so we ended up taking the side by side. We were not because we were a very desolate area. And if we didn't make it out in that side by side, we'd be back in another pickle and in mm-hmm. a bad, bad spot. We had no food. We didn't carry any of it out with us. We left it with that other guy. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up making it, but it was wide open for quite a while to get that side-by-side out of there. But we got off the mountain, um, and amongst hearing this, I had another buddy that was supposed to fly in that Sunday. Well, as soon as he heard about it, he changed his flight. Um, so we got off the mountain, and we got to a hotel, and he was there two hours later from Ohio. Wow. Um, and we kind of just reassessed, got everything dried out in the dryer, re-game planned and we went back up after elk actually okay uh, i considered my tag punched at that point mm-hmm. uh, but uh we got my buddy back on a bull and he ended up missing a bull at 500 yards but we were using a backup rifle yeah that we got there it had a broken scope and we didn't realize it so i had my buddy that was flying in from ohio fly me a scope 
off of one of the other guns of mine. Um, so it was a it was a convoluted mess, but man. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it well, took us five days, and it took us the actual retrieval process to get back to where we were was three days. Wow! Uh, from once we seen that the snow had melted enough, I think it was six days from the time that day. To, yeah, it was six days. Uh, it took three days for the snow to melt off of it. It was buried in snow. We weren't going back down that face until it melted. Yeah. Uh, but once we started, it was a full three days of hiking to get down and around. We took a whole different route this time, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we came. In, we came in from the top. But yeah, we did we did retrieve the gear. Um and my buddy from Ohio went down that cliff face with me and my other buddy he said I ain't going anywhere near that thing. Again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't blame him at all. Yep. Man, what a what a crazy story. So glad you guys made it out. Thanks for being willing to share it. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I definitely have you know learned from it and I'm sure the listeners have as well. Uh, keep that stuff locked away in your minds. If, uh, if you're ever in a similar spot, hopefully not, but, but make some of the adjustments that Jacob talked about, um, man, just, just so glad you're here able to tell the story, man. That's, that's, uh, that's a miracle. You got a second chance and you know, people don't always get that. So what a, what a blessing that is, but well, thank you yep. so much, Jacob, for being willing to come on and tell a story. Thank you to the listeners for tuning into this one. Um, do remember the podcast is presented by Spartan Forge. I'm using Spartan Forge every day right now, uh, just marking where I'm seeing deer, marking where uh, I'm finding sheds, marking trails, marking scat, doing a ton of scouting, marking rubs, scrapes if I see them. Although I really haven't seen too many scrapes yet. Maybe one yesterday. But uh, getting all that scouting done for next year. But also I'm out looking for sheds and looking for places to knock on doors. I've gotten permission on two different properties already for looking at sheds. and Or actually three properties. And uh, it's been a lot of fun getting out and looking. Um, Spartan Forge makes that super easy. Uh, it is... Uh, so convenient to drop pins on there um other mapping things you got to kind of like do all these clicks wade through all those menus to be able to drop a pin with spartan forge it's like literally i think two or three taps so it's a a really really nice user interface there then of course you get the um, other benefits of it as well the the industry leading mapping layers things like lidar crop cover, all that stuff. And then also you get the deer behavior prediction, which is really the main thing that Spartan Forge is known for. Um, Strongly recommend you try it out. You can get the app for free and get just the basic functions, which does include landowner information, knowing where the property boundaries are. That's one of the big things people want from a mapping um, uh, app. And you get that feature for free. And I think it comes free for all 50 states. Or you can do the uh, paid subscriptions. I do a yearly subscription. Um, If you wanted, you could do the monthly. Uh, Very affordable there as well. And you get the deer behavior prediction with that. Um, Also, Alex, who was on this podcast to start, he had to step away for a work thing. But um, Alex with East West Hunts can plan a successful hunt for you. Um, he is the best in the business. It just saves so much time 
in uh, preparing for a hunt to put things in Alex's hands. He's hunted all over the place. He's had success all over the place. Been there, done that. Has the gear you need if you need to rent some gear. He's got. He's, he'll take care of all the tag applications, the hunt planning for you. Talk to outfitters and guides to get scouting intel. He'll literally do it all. Go to eastwesthunts.com. Tell him you heard about uh, him and his service on this podcast, and you'll save 10%. Um, so strongly recommend you do that. And then if you get somewhere and uh, you uh, shoot something, uh, you want to memorialize that for the long run, you're going to want to need a good taxidermist. The best I can recommend is Old Barn Taxidermy. I take all my stuff to Old Barn, and they always do it right. Um, too many people settle on cheap poorly done taxidermy and it's a shame because you will not want to look at that thing and every time you do you're going to feel regret uh so go to old barn get the work done the right way they do over 500 shoulder mounts whitetail shoulder mounts a year um, they do elk they do mule deer they do mountain lions and bears fish turkeys pheasants all that stuff you can get it done at old barn taxidermy Check the link in the in my uh, in the show notes or in my link tree on my Instagram bio, and uh, talk to them about how you can use their services. If you're out of state, um, you can mail stuff to them. Um, if uh, if um, you're in Iowa, like I am, it's not a too bad of a drive, and uh, you get to see the showroom there, which is incredible. Just be sure you to- you tell them that you heard about old barn on this podcast and that helps me out a lot um and then finally uh my medic just like in uh the circumstance thankfully nobody got hurt um in uh jacob's story but uh there are some survival uh some different survival gear like items in uh like the myfac pro kit like i have um just truly the best med kits on the market And uh, I went through it with my cousin, who's a a paramedic and a uh, combat veteran. So a man familiar with uh, good first aid kits, med kits. And uh, he was really excited with uh, what he saw in there. I thought it was a very well done, thoughtfully put together uh, med kit. And uh, if you're in a dire situation in the backcountry, that kind of stuff can truly you know, make the difference in coming home, uh, you know, on your own two feet or somebody carrying you out of there. So make sure you uh, always be prepared with the right medical accessories for those trips. Go to My Medic. You can find a link in the show notes. Use the promo code at checkout. Use the promo code FIRSTGEN15. That's all one word and the number 15 at the end. And you will save yourself 15% off your purchase, which is a great uh, savings. So definitely go check out My Medic and uh, get yourself one of their industry-leading med kits. Well, thanks again, everyone. Uh, please, uh, if you haven't yet, leave a five-star review on the show if you think we're worth it. And uh, that's just a, a huge help with getting the word out to other people who uh, could you know, use the information on this podcast. That'd be a a tremendous thank you to me. But most of all, 
just thankful for you you tuning in. Please reach out if you haven't. Love hearing from you as listeners. And until next time, take care and take someone hunting.